we welcome our guest who's patiently waiting on the line from London. The British journalist Julian Borges covered a, or carved a prominent voice in the media as The Guardian's foreign correspondent in various postings and now world affairs editor. But recently he's been working to uncover a story very close to his heart. It's that of his own family history and his father's escape from the Holocaust, which has ties to the very newspaper he works for. In August 1938, an advertisement ran in the Manchester Guardian, now the Guardian, reading, I seek a kind person who will educate my intelligent boy, aged 11. That boy was Julian's father, Robert Borger, then a young Jewish boy living under Nazi rule in Austria. It was only after his dad tragically took his own life that Julian learned more of his father's past. His book, I Seek a Kind Person, following the lives of the advertised children, so-called, who avoided the Holocaust and where they ended up. Julian Borgia, welcome back to Nine to Noon. You've spoken to us as a correspondent. This is a very different interview. Welcome and thank you for your time. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Before you learned of the truth of your father's journey to England, of his boyhoods, how how did you know and remember Robert? Tell us more of his life and, and the kind of person he was. Well, he was very much saw himself as being a, an archetypal Englishman, uh, an academic. He was a psychologist. He was quite a stern uh, fa- uh, father, but he was not a self-reflective man, maybe unusually for a psychologist. He was a lecturer in psychology. Um, but we learnt most of what we know now about his youth and his childhood, particularly the time under the Nazis in Vienna, long after he died. Uh, and, for example, some of the details of uh, how they survived in Vienna, the family, and how they got out, We, I found in a, uh, a Welsh-language memoir written by a girl who... Uh, He'd known at school in Carnarvon in Wales when he'd first arrived as as a, re- a refugee and was still talking about what had happened. But by the time he grew, you know, he became an adult, met my mum and, and got married, all of that was put away and sort of covered in silence. So in a way, it would, you know, the process was like sort of dig, doing archaeology on uh, our own family and finding out uh, things about him that we'd never been told. Your book begins with you hearing about Robert's death. You're in your early 20s, I think, just through university yourself. A devastating experience for your mother, for you, and in many ways has that driven the quest to understand more of his life? Well, what happened was, yeah, after he took his life, um, I one of my jobs was to ring around uh, relatives and friends, and the person I left till last was the woman who brought him up in Wales, his foster mother, Nance Bingley, she was called, uh, and it's the call I, I most feared making. So I called her up, and there was a long silence on the other end of, on the other end of the line, uh, and then she said Robert was the Nazi's last victim. Uh, they They got him in the end. 
Uh, it was c- complete shock to me. Uh, we never thought about that. He, he he had professional disappointments. His marriage had broken down. So we thought it was all about that. But of course, she had known him as a refugee, as a vulnerable refugee boy, before he'd sort of taken on this persona of a uh, an English academic. And also she knew something that I only found out many decades afterwards, that his last, the last place he went before taking his life, uh, of all the people he chose to go and see, was Nance, uh, the, the woman who did know him uh, as a boy, as a refugee. Uh, but unfortunately, tragically, she just happened to be away in Wales that weekend. Uh, he'd gone to her house in in uh, Woking, just outside London. And so he hung around a bit. Uh, uh, her daughter-in-law uh, gave him tea, uh, and then he drove off. Uh, and uh, that was the last time anyone saw him alive. Um, and so when I called her back in 1983, and gave her the terrible news. It must have been really devastating because uh, uh, she'd realised that you know that he'd come and gone, and that the, the, the days after he'd taken his own life. Um, so, what clearly they it hinted at something that I didn't know about my dad. How he the shadow of his childhood and his time in Vienna under the Nazis uh, sort of darkened his life uh, and was a a burden on him. But I really, it was really decades later when this advert in the Manchester Guardian was uncovered that I began to dig and went back to the uh, archives in Vienna and unearthed this also this Welsh language memoir that I began to understand more of what he'd gone through and how that shaped him as an adult. The Manchester Guardian, as it was then, very much uh, part of your young life, no doubt a factor in your choice of career. Uh, But you had no link at the time, or no idea of of the link at the time between your father's story and the paper. Some vague idea, some vague impression of Robert's early life, uh, perhaps, and, and, and his story of coming to the UK, but how did you first get alerted to these ads and this process affecting, devastating process affecting so many families? It was a chance encounter, was it not? That's right. I was talking to an immigration lawyer uh, in the last days of Trump when the administration was chucking out uh, African asylum seekers in their last weeks, uh, in particular Cameroonians were potentially being sent to their deaths. And I was talking to an immigration lawyer uh, about their cases. Uh, and she one day sent me an email saying, we keep living the same trauma. And she talked about her own father, who'd been a refugee uh, from Vienna. And we got talking about that common heritage. And by some chance, her father had come out with the help of the Manchester Guardian, and it shook loose a memory of of there being a a sort of family legend that the Guardian was somehow 
involved, one that I'd never chased down um, and kind of forgotten about. And so it reawakened this curiosity of mine. And I I wrote to our archivist, the Guardian's archivist, a guy called Richard Nelson, and said, maybe, you know, this will make a story because it was coming out to the Guardian's 200th anniversary. Uh, And so I thought maybe this will make a story about the Manchester Guardian in wartime. Uh, And the next day, he had found it and he emailed me and uh, it really bowled me over because, you know, the lines of it are so desperate and to think of my grandparents, parents trying to think of ways of the, to describe Robert, my dad, in a way that would make him attractive to foster parents was really, uh, you know, uh, overwhelming, de- devastating. Uh, and then of course I found the other adverts of all the other children and uh, uh, I felt I had to, find out what had happened to them. I'm just looking here from the image at the start of the book, the original adverts listed in the Manchester Guardian, seeking tuition for your father and other Viennese children, dated 3rd August 1938, the second one. I seek a kind person who will educate my intelligent boy, aged 11, Viennese of good family. And then the address. Another here, fervent prayer in great distress. Who would give a home to a grammar school scholar aged 13? Healthy, clever, very musical. Um, and, and so they go. Here's another. Two very modest sisters aged 14 and 17, Jews, half orphans, well trained, pray to be accepted as foster children to a very good house. This in the tuition column, you know, this in amidst the stamps for sale um, or, you know, instruments for sale. These are children, and and when you read it, you just begin to think of the desperation behind it, Julian. Absolutely, I mean, it, you know, it it's really um, overwhelming to think. I mean, I have a son. How would I advertise him if his life depended on it? What would I say about him? Uh, how would I make him seem uh, uh, attractive to foster parents who might save his life? Uh, it's really overwhelming thought, and the thought also the image of all those goodbyes in the station, uh, the uh, Westbahnhof station uh, in Vienna, where a lot of parents say goodbye to their children, not knowing if they would ever see them again. And in in many cases, they didn't see them again. So the last they saw, waving them off to an uncertain future, strange people in a strange land. Um, It just gives an idea of the sense of dread and foreboding that had come over Jews in Vienna in the months after the Nazis took over. This was post the Anschluss. Yes, just place this exactly with where things were at. And the yes. Anschluss being, mm. the, the, um, just help me out, the annexation of, of Austria yeah. was underway, right? And was it simply too late for whole families to leave? No, not at that time. So March 38, the Nazis uh, march in, Hitler arrives, annexation, and then overnight these race laws descend, and so uh, Jews lost their property, they lost their jobs, uh, and then one by one they they were rounded up and made uh, to do humiliation things like clean the uh, pavements and the roads with little brushes uh, while all their neighbours... Um, would you know spit on them, jeer at them, kick them, um, and so uh, and one by one the, the men were taken off to Dachau. Some of them came back, but some didn't. 
So there was this growing sense of uh, doom, really. I mean, some thought this is so awful, so obscene, that it can't last, that it's un-Austrian, it's unhuman, therefore it can't last. And some people thought it will pass. Uh, And really it was the pessimists who thought, no, this is going in a very bad direction and it's going to keep going in that direction. It was the pessimists who ended up surviving. And you were able to get, uh, if you could get a visa to a foreign country, you could get an exit visa from uh, from Vienna and would be allowed to leave. One way was to get a student v- visa if you could get your child uh, sponsored by a family in Britain. Another way, and this is a route that my grandmother took, was to be uh, a maid in a house, in a British household, because there was a shortage of maids at that time, and you could get a visa for being a domestic worker. Uh, my grandfather, my family, immediate family, were lucky. They started early. They advertised themselves. And my my grandfather got out really at the last moment as an agricultural labor laborer. But those who left it too late found the door closing on them and the options narrowing all the time. Uh, and many didn't make it. And you tell their stories, the untold stories, as you dub it. Um, they were they ran a, a musical shop. Remind me, please. Um, ran a business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but one by one they leave, uh, and and their boy goes uh, as one of these so-called um, advertisement children. You've met other families as well, and we'll talk more about this. Other children, they had very different experiences of their foster families and of life after. There's one thing they have in common, of course, which is the whole trauma of the separation. But could you speak a little bit more to your father's experiences um, and the obvious impacts on his life. Yeah, yeah I, what we found out is that he'd been, um, he'd seen his father um, having to clean the streets and, and uh, was taken away, arrested, spent a night away in the police station. But my father, as a um, then just a 10-year-old, was chased through the streets by the SA, the brown shirts, um, who were just rounding people up. And, and he hid out in a synagogue and they locked him in there and he spent the night while his parents were desperately searching for him. Um, and he saw his grandmother's flat being ransacked and her piano thrown out of a upper story window and came crashing down on the ground and uh, her flat being uh, turned over by these thugs, the brown shirts and the Hitler youth. By the time that he arrived in Carnarvon with his foster family, he was a traumatized child uh they had to take the whistle off the kettle because it rounded it reminded them of him of the uh, brown shirts uh blowing whistles when they came to round up jews uh um and when they said oh we have to go and register with the police he fainted because he just associated going with the police uh with being taken away uh and never coming back so he was in a he was in a very nervous state 
by the time that he arrived. But in later life, he suppressed all this, didn't talk about it, we didn't know. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think my, my, my hunch, my gut feeling is, you know, suppression was not the way for him, you know, the right way to handle it. Uh, that I think part of it was sparing the you know, us, the next generation, from having to hear about it. But clearly, it dwelt on him the rest of his life. Reunification not possible either when he was a boy. You mentioned through various routes his parents did escape. But was it to do with the conditions on the visas that, that he could yeah. not reunite? Yes, so he never lived with them again because my grandmother was working as a domestic uh, a maid so she couldn't have a child with him. Uh, my grandfather was going to place the place, uh, having jobs as a labourer, uh, and the conditions of the visa weren't, were that they were came out singly. And so he was brought up by this Welsh school te- uh, teaching couple, Nance and Reg Bingley in Carnarvon. They might grandparents probably thought actually that in terms of getting on in a new country that was the best for him it was a, a, a wonderful loving home they uh, fostered another welsh child and adopted two more it was a very sort of open-hearted open door home and among all the refugee children who came out through the ads whose lives i lost uh, looked at uh, he was among the luckiest because others found themselves in households where the instinct was to exploit them. Uh, They became uh, cheap child labour. And so looking back at it and looking to the other lives, um, I found out that he'd been very lucky indeed. Julian Borger, our guest, his book is I Seek a Kind Person. It's the story of his father, but also of seven other children of the adverts in the Manchester Guardian, as it then was, that uh, poignantly pleaded for, or sometimes less overtly, asked for families to take these young children, uh, in this instance from Vienna. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. Why was it the Manchester Guardian, were there other organs, or was it particularly the Manchester Guardian, that, that would be the source of placing these ads? They were there were adverts in other newspapers, the Telegraph, the Jewish Chronicle, but there was a link between uh, Vienna and Manchester, partly uh, because of the the rag trade, track textiles, clothing. They had that in common. Uh, the Guardian editor at the time, William Crozier, had put a lot of emphasis on covering what was happening to the Jews in Central Europe. Uh, set up a uh, set up a network of correspondents one of whom was a guy called Marcel Foda, known as Mike Foda, who was uh, a Jew from uh, Central Europe himself um, and wrote very passionately about what was happening to the Jews. And so there was a sense of trust there. And so when the Jewish community in Vienna was uh, advising families about what to do and how to try and get out, they recommended putting ads in the Manchester Guardian in particular because of this sense that there was this was a a, a newspaper that was read by um, ordinary British people and Manchester had a strong big Jewish community so it was seen as a sympathetic place and a good bet if you were going to 
uh, place one of these adverts that cost a shilling a line. Uh, a good place to make that bet. Of the other children that you found and spoke to and or their families, um, what did you learn? As you said, some had very different experiences. They were exploited. One boy who also became a psychologist, I don't know if there's um, a logical link there as as to the career that one might pursue after such an upheaval in a young life. Uh, I think he got sent to a boarding school initially. But what else did you learn about this chapter of their lives, were there commonalities of their experiences later in life? Yeah, the, they were about 80 children altogether, but I focused on the seven others because they had left extensive memoirs or given really extensive interviews. And in one case, uh, there was a woman who was still alive. There was one last survivor who I was able to interview at length. And so I focused on them and uh, there was a common experience almost common experience of, of making it to Britain uh, and having foster parents that were you know either good or bad or something in between but then and in a way this was really a stroke of luck for me in terms of writing this book they had very very different experiences uh, one uh, guy uh, George Mandler the, the man who became a psychologist uh, found his way to America, joined up with the U.S. Army, went back as a military intelligence officer uh, and took part. And he was part of a unit of Jewish refugee intelligence officers chasing the rem- remnants of the SS through the forests of Germany. Another uh, girl got out, got far out as far as Britain, but her parents could only get uh, to Shanghai where you didn't need a visa. So she was got, uh, with the help of relatives, got onto a, a, a boat, a Japanese boat, uh, um, ocean liner, that took her from Liverpool uh, around the world to uh, Shanghai, uh, where Jews, uh, more than 20,000 Jews, were put in a ghetto for the duration of the war. Uh, And she describes what it was like to live in that Jewish ghetto under Japanese rule uh, for the duration of the war. It's an extraordinary story. And then there is another of the uh, kids from the Manchester Guardian ads, uh, a guy called Fred Schwartz, who only made it as far as Netherlands, Uh, He and his brother were captured by the Germans, put in a concentration camp there, uh, eventually sent to Theresienstadt, where he uh, meets a girl he falls in love with, and then he and his brother are taken to Auschwitz. But they survive Auschwitz because they were sent out on a work detail to a camp, part of the Buchenwald uh, uh, series of camps, and they survive that, and they end up uh, making their way into uh, U.S.-controlled territory in uh, Czechoslovakia uh, and eventually back to Eindhoven in the Netherlands where he meets the the girl that he'd fallen in love with in Theresienstadt uh, and they spend the rest of their lives together. It's an extraordinary story of, of survival. Um, I really never come across anything like it. So I, I was very fortunate in the point of from the point of view of writing a, a book to find such a 
range of uh, experiences. Thank you so much, Julian Borger. The book about his father and other children helped by the uh, Manchester Guardian adverts, the families who took them in to escape the Holocaust, is called I Seek a Kind Person.